reaching an agreement is one of the most uh, expensive uh, and sophisticated uh, activities of human beings in the organization. Still, it's also underrated and uh, underestimated. Like, oh, just we need to reach an agreement. That might take ages. A lot of it is about well, visualizing instead of talking. That speeds up things. And the second is we don't try to reach an agreement. We try to visualize this agreement instead so that we can get a snapshot of this is our current level of understanding including the current disagreement. So I would split reaching an agreement from the visualization. The only thing we agree is, uh, is this the way we all see this today? Yes, fine. It is beautiful. No, it is honest. Yes, that's the best we can do. Then if we need to converge, every convergence, every agreement has a cost. And uh, the cost might actually skyrocket in uh, larger distributed organizations. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. In this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs. And we speak about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world we live. I'm Simone Cicero, and today I'm joined by my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, Stina. Hello, everybody. Today, we're also joined by Alberto Brandolini. Besides being the inventor of the um, bullshit asymmetry uh, principle, uh, aka the Brandolini's law, Alberto is a legend of uh, domain-driven design. Uh, he has invented one of the most uh, used uh, modeling techniques uh, in the space, uh, the uh, technique called uh, even storming. Alberto is also a frequent speaker at conferences and events. Is an international trainer with uh, more than 10 years of experience and is also the founder of a um, company called Avance Coperta, uh, which is a hub uh, for inventing, uh, promoting, and spreading new ideas around uh, software development, uh, such a critical uh, things, uh, thing in, in the world uh, we live in. Amascoperta provides trainings and consulting services, and Alberto is always uh, available to add some uh, new insights in the space. Hello, Alberto, it's great to have you here. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Uh, we kind of uh, deliberately inv invited Alberto to the podcast because uh, we needed some expert um, uh, kind of uh, sparring partner in our exploration of some of the most uh, complex uh, issues of our research. Uh, I think we, 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 we made the case for this conversation because we, we wanted to explore uh, the role of uh, domain-driven design and more generally, I think, uh, uh, the role of uh, language and, and context mapping into um, this process that we, we see happening or at least we believe it needs to happen, which we often call the ontological convergence. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, all these evolutions in the industry, uh, in technology or software, uh, that are uh, driving, for example, the adoption of uh, common models, software modules, uh, protocols. But in general, I think uh, what we want to investigate with Alberto, this space where language and, and technology uh, are converging, So uh, in this large space, we believe that increasingly uh, the uh, boundaries are blurring, boundaries between technology and business, boundaries between one team and another team, boundaries between one organization and another organization. So Alberto, maybe as, a, as an initial kind of common ground, you can give us a little bit of uh, uh, 
uh, overview of uh, what domain-driven design is, why it's becoming ever more important as we move forward uh, in, in, in this century, and uh, a little bit of maybe your contribution to the space, uh, your work with uh, even solving. The fundamental problem in software development that uh, domain-driven design tries to address is, is the fact that uh, especially in enterprise software development, what is really, really important is uh, understanding what is the problem we are trying to solve. It's not about uh, yeah coding uh, speed, uh, but it's about understanding what is the right thing to do. Okay, this, this seems like fairly obvious, but if we think about what is uh, the structure of the of a typical enterprise organization, be it profit or non-profit, doesn't matter, you have departments which are usually structured in silos. They have uh, local expertise, uh, often expressed in local jargons, uh, and uh, all of this mixture of languages and diverging perspectives uh, is very, very hard to uh, compress, squeeze into a single model solved a variety of problems uh, throughout the enterprise. So what domain-driven designs does instead is uh, one, acknowledges that uh, the conversational language we use for uh, gathering requirement, discussing knowledge with, uh, with the experts, uh, is not a completely reliable media. Uh, there are synonyms, there, there are uh, words with multiple meanings, and there are uh, all of the possible inconsistencies if people are coming from different cultures. There's a typical example of uh, let's have a coffee, and then you're doing this with an Italian, and they means let's have an espresso, but you don't call it espresso if you are Italian because it's obvious, it's small. It's just uh, whatever bigger is, is not a coffee. And then, well, if you are from Nordic country, you need the larger cup because the weather is colder outside and so coffee is something different. Uh, so if we assume the same coffee is probably not going to work at the softer level. But uh, in terms of domain-driven design, domain-driven design brings on the table, one, awareness of the possible inconsistencies of the conversational language. Two, the fact that if you go for one single model solving all the problems is not going to work. You're stretching it, you're bending it, and you're making it very, very hard to maintain and, uh, and not very fitting the many purposes. Instead, DDD suggests to say to do two things. One, accept to have many mul multiple single purpose models, each one with a very specific language inside. Inside this, bund, uh, this bubble that we can call a bounded context, we could consider language to be reliable instead. Every term has only one meaning, and the language is what becomes called uh, the ubiquitous language, could be spoken by every uh, representative uh, of every stakeholder of the software project, be it the, the business expert, be it the software developers, the, the DBA or the tester, whoever is involved, the words they use are very precise, have no ambiguity in this specific context. So that inside this bounded context, you could optimize the model towards one purpose, multiple model, each one very, very precise. That is the main idea. Then the thing that might be really interesting is uh, why this became popular. It was an idea that was born actually 17 years ago now, and there was a, a little group of early adopters that were happy about it, and then there was a little bit of a hype cycle, and then it started booming uh, again. Uh, well, actually, 
10 years ago was the beginning of the Renaissance when uh, ideas from uh, uh, Greg Young and Yuli Dahan uh, became, uh, became popular and was von Verne with the, with the Red Book. And uh, we have a little bit more uh, architectural options. That was also my contribution uh, a couple of years later with even storming. And then it, uh, the, the other driving force was coming from the outside, the microservices movement, the goal, uh, the rush for distributed architecture. Well, if you go in this direction, you got to have uh, very clear what is the structure in terms of models, because if you are still bringing the coupling with you from a data centric architecture, well, then your microservices architecture is going to have a very, very hard life. That, that is the main idea. That's the reason why it's getting more popular. If you go distributed, then having clean boundaries and separation really becomes a, a key factor in effectiveness and, uh, and success. When it comes to even storming, even storming is a way to deal with uh, gathering information, learning in, in the enterprise. Instead of uh, having uh, uh, multiple interviews with business stakeholders trying to understand what is their own problem. Then you talk with somebody else that give you a different version of the same problem or maybe a different perspective. And then you, you're trying to put together all the different stories in a coherent whole. Well, with even storming, we do something different. Uh, we gather all the key stakeholders in the same room. We try to build an end-to-end -end model of a business line, of a critical project or uh, whatever is the scope could actually scale up to very, very large workshops. And together, we build a, a behavioral model of everything. The building blocks are little sticky notes where you write uh, events on them, like uh, uh, item purchase, order completed, order delivered, payment uh, received, and all, all this stuff. We put them on a visible timeline. But the thing is, we're not doing it in a boring way. We are doing it together, just like uh, we first make uh, a big mass is actually called chaotic exploration, the first step of, uh, of an even storming workshop. But then this little crowd participating to the workshop, well, tries to linearize the storyline. Okay, this has to happen before this. I'm gonna, I cannot send you uh, these goods to uh, your address if I haven't collected uh, your address or if I received the payment. Oh, did you always receive the payment before the order? Not always. Okay, so we have a lot of discussions during the workshop. The model becomes more sophisticated and all of these discussions are spontaneous and provide a clarification of the, of the flow. In the space of one day, we get uh, roughly 20, 30 people now having a visible model, something like 12, 15 meters of everything that happens inside the business line. But also we could see more stuff like which are the critical systems, which are the critical people, which are the default boundaries of, uh, of uh, handoff, responsibility switch, uh, uh, change of pers perspective, whatever could enrich the model. And this becomes a very, very sophisticated background for any other conversation. When are we creating value could be an obvious step. Or who is responsible for this area? Where this responsibility ends? What is going to be the scope of our next development project? A lot of these things are actually visible, including frictions, discussions, and uh, yeah, different point of views. It just makes every other conversation a lot easier and makes a very, very good learning experience. Last but not least, instead of gathering information from different sources in different moments, 
even storming forces all the sources to agree on the representation of what happens so we get the story which is already linearized and this linearization is where most of the learning happens okay now i see it end to end i know what every person is doing how these people are contributing to the model oh now it's a piece of cake that's where i like to be what is the difference in your experience in approaching uh, these challenges with domain-driven design approach when it comes to, on one hand, uh, uh, building a product for a customer, and on the other side, instead, when it comes to maybe more like process-oriented work, uh, which uh, is typically related to how companies work, how different departments hand over a, a part of the value proposition or the processes that ex- uh, need to be executed to generate a certain value proposition. So is there a difference, I would say, or something that maybe is worth double-clicking in this differentiation between a small team building a new product for a certain type of customer and on the other side, larger organizations? Okay, well, there are differences. I would start from the organization perspective first. So I'm flipping your your questions because then uh, it's going to be easier for me uh, to answer. So domain-driven design was was not born with products in mind, was born with uh, enterprise software. I'm looking to the organization. I'm trying to understand what is the key differentiator in the current moment in time for the organization. And I'm applying advanced design and modeling and implementation techniques to this portion of the software because this is the place that is going to make a difference right now for the organization. So having multiple stakeholders is embedded in the fact that we are making software, developing software for the enterprise. In terms of even storming, um, also, I, I mentioned it like uh, this is one thing. Actually, even storming is a family of workshop. The one I described is what I call the big picture. A lot of people involved. There are two other recipes. Uh, one is called process modeling, which is uh, really, really optimized for designing collaboratively processes which might or might not include software uh, in this and there's a more technical version which is uh, software design which designs uh, software components which are supporting business processes so there's a lot of focus in uh, all the decisions that happen during uh, a business flow and what is the data needed to support this decision what are people looking at maybe in terms of uh, uh, ux uh, ui visualizing the information which is crucial and also understanding how this information is coming from, whether if it's missing, whether if it's uh, easy to acquire and uh, looking at bottlenecks and all of this stuff. So in one way, the way domain-driven design was born and also the, the way even storming was, uh, was developed, it was thinking with one organization in mind. And uh, that was software for the organization. That's a uh, default space. The moment we move into products, uh, a few things change. One thing is, well, depends on the product. Some products are workflow product. I mean, we've been working on something that was uh, uh, related to financial analysis, uh, forecasts, uh, and uh, related to billing and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and sharing forecasts inside the organization. That was cool, but that's already a portion of... Uh, a typical customer's workflow. So it, it might still be really useful to go even storming to understand what happens in the customer flow. Still, it really changes. If you're talking about uh, 
uh, one customer, if you are maybe a consulting company developing one custom solution for one external organization, or if you're developing the product uh, for the market. In this case, you don't have one customer, I hope. I hope you have more than them. But then you need to design not for the specific customer, but for your idea, uh, ideal customer persona or customer persona. So we think market segments, you think about what the typical customer might, uh, might want. And it really changes some. I mean, if you are a consumer market, you, you're going to uh, look to a very, very large space of uh, a very diverging uh, way of using it. And if you are very specific to a given niche, well, maybe you can approximate the default, uh, default usage. Still, there's something which is uh, even in uh, products which are not following this uh, workflow uh, approach, well, think uh, Excel, for example. That's a tool that doesn't really follow any workflow approach. It's purposive. You can use it in so many different ways. A spreadsheet, yeah, we don't know what, what is the moment in the workflow where you're using it. You're using it maybe for whatever. So it doesn't make any sense to explore this in an event-based approach. Okay, that's the first difference. And another one, but still, if you are the company making a product, a spreadsheet, you will still have a lot of workload on your side. Maybe marketing, customer acquisition, well, registration, activation, uh, product setup, and then also gathering, uh, tracking uh, uh, inconsistencies and bag claims and, and, uh, and also the billing, all of the stuff that happens around uh, the product. That's very, very domain-driven design in the structure and could also be explored very efficiently with even storming. And yeah, we did it. It works and really helps usually. Everything you speak about doesn't really sound like software related to me. You spoke about, for example, uh, DDD uh, as a way to ensure learning in the inter enterprise. It's all about uh, ensuring that the people around a certain process understand uh, clearly what they're talking about and they have this ubiquitous language and, and share the language among each other. And I'm sometimes uh, very surprised that... Uh, Companies often don't uh, understand how much is important to have shared models, to agree uh, around something. And because this process of agreeing, first of all, it's um, inherently collective. So it's something that uh, is a property of the ensemble, I would say, not of the single person in the organization. And also because it's a way to really make uh, uh, trade-offs visible. When we prepared this conversation, you spoke about something very interesting to me, that is uh, this idea of uh, uh, seeing the cost-benefit of agreeing, right? Can we try to uh, clarify why this kind of piece of work that not many companies seem to do, why is this, uh, at the same time, so important, obviously, and on the other hand, very much undervalued and uh, rarely uh, practiced uh, by organizations. Reaching an agreement is one of the most uh, expensive and sophisticated uh, activities of human beings in the organization. Still, it's also underrated and uh, underestimated. Oh, just we need to reach an agreement. That might take ages. If you look at the dynamics of what happens in the big picture, even storming, we are visualizing everything and we are agree on nothing. And that's 
what makes a workshop really, really efficient. I mean, agreeing on a solution has a different uh, path and a different format. That's what we do on software design and process modeling format. But what makes uh, it viable to run a large workshop, 20, 30 people in the same room, is that, that we basically postpone agreement. And we use uh, tricks like little hotspot, uh, magenta or fuchsia sticky notes saying visualizing disagreement exactly because uh, if we try to normalize every bit of the model where we don't agree, time is going to pass and we're going to finalize nothing. So the main idea about the big picture is uh, reaching an agreement uh, has caused that go exponentially up uh, uh, related to the number of people just because each one of them want to have an opinion or just make the same opinion heard by everybody is going to slow us down a lot. So a lot is about visualizing instead of talking. That speeds up things. And the second is we don't try to reach an agreement. We try to visualize this agreement instead so that we can get a snapshot of this is our current level of understanding including the current disagreement. Then some of those disagreements might be worth investigation, and then we do a separate workshop for them. But uh, I think the key thing is uh, in every organization, it's just uh, the cost of reaching an agreement is underestimated. It's treated like an easy activity, and it's not. And this cost is really related to the size of the organization Reaching an agreement about the meaning of a word in a very large organization could take ages or, or could be fake. People might end up lying. Yes, yes, it's fine for me. It's not fine. I just don't want to spend any more uh, hours or days or months discussing it. Still, it's valuable. So I would split reaching an agreement from the visualization. So I'm all for visualization. I'm visualizing the current state of understanding validated by everybody. The only thing we agree is, is this the way we all see this today? Yes, fine, that's, that's good enough. But all of my different opinions are visualized. Great, that's something we can put our signature on. It is beautiful. No, it is honest. Yes, that's the best we can do. Then if we need to converge, every convergence, every agreement has a cost. And uh, the cost might actually skyrocket in a larger distributed organization. I believe this is really a way to make a case for modularity. Am I right? So this idea that uh, we can achieve uh, large, complex systems only through modularity that uh, reduces the need for agreement in, inside the module, let's say, and leaves the rest to a clear interface? Yes and no. I mean, uh, having uh, components, modules that have a very specific purpose, uh, it just uh, reduces the need to collective agreement about stuff. But at the same time, there's something embedded inside of driven design in the space of uh, context mapping. There are a few patterns of collaboration uh, which are stressing the different uh, edges. So let's say uh, you might have a, a context mapping part called a shared kernel, which is saying like, uh, okay, there's a portion of our model which is exactly the same. We are going to treat it like uh, one and shared with everybody, which has the advantage of having a single definition. Perfect. But it has these advantages, which is the cost of evolving this one is very, very high. Because uh, if you touch this little portion of the software, it can have uh, uh, massive ripple effects 
across the organization. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you might have uh, uh, something like uh, um, patterns of collaboration. This model is evolving, but I need a separate version of it, which is evolving to mine it. So I can still negotiate the translation if needed, or if there is no space for negotiation the translation, I will write an adapter so that my model is going to be independent from the external model. And I don't have to be involved in all the discussions about the evolution. Uh, also, the, the, the final extreme is what is called separate ways. There is this model, there is this model, which is uh, apparently very similar, but the cost of coordinating or merging the two is not worth uh, the, the coordination cost. So I do what I want, you do what you want, Maybe let's have a beer in a few years, but let's have zero coordination costs between our models because coordination has a cost. Domain-driven design maps all of these patterns and drawing a map of this collaboration is displaying you the forces that could make your software project a success or a trap. That's actually very powerful because it shows uh, the gray area between software architecture and politics, which uh, nobody else is looking at. Making things that are usually like very complex so clear to some extent through your mapping, it's, it's quite easy to visualize how, how that would work. But then, like you said, when you're approaching the politics of the situation, what I was curious to understand better when you were explaining the approach is that it seems like if you take this domain-driven design approach in the flow that you mentioned, if you have a kind of blank slate, no, that seems that it would work more smoothly, right? Because you would map everything and then you can see some levels of disagreement. But if you're starting from a blank page, of course, it's easier to find the optimal agreements and probably the cost of reaching an agreement might be less. But then if you work in, in contexts where there are already vested interests, there are existing solutions in in place that maybe have some level of lock-in also through contracts and previous investment. How do you work in, in such a context? Is that part of the disagreements that you might visualize? Or can you work with this kind of method in already existing quite complex environment? What does emerge if you do that? And what implications can it have for how the organization evolves in that case? The first answer is uh, yes, absolutely very same tool, which is context mapping, could be used in Brownfield and in Greenfield scenario. I don't know which one is easier because, uh, well, let me uh, take a look at the Brownfield. Uh, we're going to have legacy software. Uh, we're going to have uh, existing contracts and, and strong forces. We're just visualizing them, uh, drawing a context map of uh, a, a complex enterprise scenario shows the politics, shows the constraints uh, shows, for example, the fact that uh, there's a strong uh, business uh, need to evolve one portion of the software, which is downstream to low quality components uh, and subject to, well, let's say, uh, ripple effects, interferences, or uh, yeah, sometimes also uh, failures. And uh, if somebody is asking our team to, oh, you need to deliver great software there, but we don't have our boundaries protected, 
well, it might be a good moment for waving a red flag. Unless we protect ourselves from the outside influence, we cannot make great stuff here because it's going to be a continuous cycle of firefighting, restarting stuff, fixing problems which are not ours, and so on. And this information is very clear before starting the project and very vital. So before starting any project in legacy, we do what is called brownfield context mapping. It makes me ask the right tough questions and draw them up quickly and then give, uh, well, some uh, hard to digest advice. Like this is never going to work unless we do this. Oh no, but we have to keep it. Well, then goodbye. That, <laughs> that's, that's the type of discussion we might have. If you go on a clean slate or, or a greenfield uh, type of thing, uh, then uh, it is easier because you don't have the politics involved and nobody cannot be blamed for uh, purchasing a license of a, for a useless tool 10 years ago that now becomes a, a drag in, for the evolution. Uh, you don't have this problem. Still, uh, you have software architect aiming to do the perfect thing uh, and this could become paralysis in some scenario. That's why I, I said like maybe it's not easier because uh, you might be wondering uh, a lot, okay, what might be the perfect decomposition of this system? That's a place where we actually do use a lot, uh, even storming, uh, to understand what is the flow and then to detect the ideal, uh, ideal boundaries. Actually, most of the time, we do a combination of the two activities. We try to detect what might be the ideal boundaries. We look at the existing legacy to see where are the effective boundaries. And then we put the two images together and we look at both of them. Oh, this is where you should be. This is where you are instead. So now, what are we going to change first? What is the single transformation that is leading you into a better place? We are seeing technologies making it easier to build software, I would say, uh, from non-software professionals, right? So a couple of things that this brings up is, um, for me, uh, I would say a multiplication of the context where software can be adopted. So in general, we can expect maybe a future where more applications get built and uh, uh, to some extent also uh, some kind of uh, larger uh, standardization of the enabling layers. So, uh, you know, let's say that everybody uses a certain low-code technology. Most of the software will be uh, modules that exist already in the technology and uh, um, lots of uh, work to be done more in terms of uh, deciding how these modules get connected for a specific need of a specific person, right? So, I would say that uh, uh, with the penetration of these technologies, there will be more job, more work for bids persons, maybe less work for purely software persons. First of all, uh, what is your perception about these and uh, in the role of uh, uh, DDD and in general these collective techniques to uh, make uh, some people agree around what they want to build uh, around a shared model? So how are they? this kind of practice is going to be impacted by the penetration of low-code uh, environments or even AI in software. Are they going to be less important, more important? Most of uh, no-code and low-code approaches, approaches uh, are actually designed around the paradigm which is uh, antithetic to domain-driven design. I mean, domain-driven design maps uh, uh, many things, uh, and uh, one way to describe this could be the conformist. But let's say most of those, uh, this now code is about uh, maybe 
getting some data from one source and forwarding to another one, or maybe maybe making a little bit of data manipulation on this and then visualizing in it uh, on another platform. The great advantage is exactly what you mentioned, just like uh, there's a lot of do-it-yourself approach that could really help. If we are in the prototyping stage, that's actually amazing. You can get something that looks almost like what you want in a very, very short time. Amazing. The thing it changes if you start looking at uh, things uh, in, a, in a longer perspective, like uh, whatever you write uh, in terms of software is something that needs to be maintained uh, later on. So is the business person maintaining the software? Well, maybe not. Is the software person happening to maintain a no-code solution or low-code solution? I'm not sure. Maybe that's not the right ecosystem you would like to create. It's still great in the early stages of a startup, but it might not be good for a more mature, uh, mature enterprise. Behind the scenes, uh, good business enterprise software discovered in a, in a domain-driven design way is a little bit more event-based. Uh, no code solution seems to be closer to the mental model of the business person and seems to be a little bit more data centric. That's something that will have a price at a given moment in time. Uh, the other thing still has to do with the evolution of software. Uh, so let's say I have uh, one business need that I need for, uh, for, my, for my company. In our case, uh, we needed a platform for selling tickets uh, for our uh, training organization. Great, we, we find the solution already, we started using it, and we kept using it. Then at a given moment, you would like to go to some other solution because uh, you might be trapped license cost or maybe it's not really fitting what you need to do now. So you might want to go to another one. The moment you want to switch to another solution or evolve it, uh, you realize that uh, it's not only passing from uh, solution A to solution B, if you want to keep historical record of all the stuff that happened, you need an internal model somewhere to merge the historical information from the multiple sources. And then, oh, just giving all of your model inside a third-party tool might not have been the perfect solution in long-term thinking for your organization. So the moment we needed to make the transition from A to B, we needed to build an internal C model that could bridge between A and B because uh, the only way to preserve history. So this is one of the, uh, of the tricky things. It's just different life cycle. Domain-driven design has a, a, a word for it, which is uh, it's called the conformist pattern. There's already a model. It looks really, really convenient. You have very good uh, short-term advantages you also have disadvantages in the long term. So make a conscious solution. It might be a throwaway model. It might also become a trap later on. But then you might be already successful enough to pay for a better solution. What I perceive here is don't use a no-code solution or, a, or a, an existing product for a um, specific uh, business, part of the business process that is central to your business. Otherwise, every time you have to change something, you will, uh, for example, lo uh, lose your history or your data and so on. So, so essentially, there is a kind of a pressure to, as an organization, be able to develop your own uh, software backbone, I would say. Let's say the message is uh, be a variety of you know, this kind of no-code or even AI-driven software development, 
because they are luring you, but over the long term, it may be very complex, let's say, to evolve. Can we say that investing in DDD or in general in, in understanding these models and visualizing them and understanding your bounded context as an organization and creating these you know, kind of spaces where the people in the organization can, can share a model, share a language, is a way to kind of keep the organization more capable of evolving to some extent. So it's like uh, as an organization, you have to go through these because it makes a better organization, makes a more capable organization once an organization has a set of shared models and uh, um, the capability to understand how these bounded contexts of existing models connect with each other and, 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 and evolve. Uh, so w- what do you think in terms of the strategic, uh, um, I would say, role uh, that, um, you know, integrating this kind of modeling techniques and domain-driven design in general can bring to the organization in terms of strategic advantage? Two things. One, I wouldn't be so radical to, to, to say, like, well, don't go no-code or low-code. It's, uh, it's mostly about... Uh, maturity and awareness there is a spectrum the thing that i might be uh, warning people about is uh, the life cycle of a piece of software is most, mostly maintenance and uh, well the solution for building a uh, situation for building a prototype might be 10% of the life cycle of uh, uh, of your software product and maybe the business person the founder of a startup uh, it's not clearly the person who's going to be in charge of maintenance of all the no-code, low-code components scattered around the system. But we are adults, and we know that we are. if you are uh, prototyping a business model with a startup, maybe we're not going to get anywhere. So it's uh, absolutely reasonable to go fast prototyping. What Adobe uh, uh, Driven Design suggests is just like be aware of the cost of your architectural decision. And in general, be aware of the evolutions of these forces around time. It's not only now, is uh, how long are you going to stay with this piece of software? It looks so beautiful right now. It can be a terrible trap in five years. In terms of uh, other exploration tools, be it in storm, in context mapping, this is very could also be outside of domain-driven design. It is not calling for a very sophisticated implementation or is not calling for a sophisticated implementation everywhere. It's one thing is, uh, are you aware of the forces inside your organization? At a very high level, even storming is just telling, uh, it's just a collaborative way to do something like value stream mapping or a multi-currency value coordinates. So where are you creating revenues? Where are you creating uh, goods? Where are you improving the reputation of the people involved? Where are you creating happiness? Uh, That's all of the stuff that could get visualized. And that's great information to be uh, available inside the organization. The moment you are aware of uh, which are the steps making your collaborators happy, which are the steps making them angry, well, that's actually uh, really, really valuable. Same goes for uh, uh, mapping the models, uh, the the different purposes of software components in your organization. Somebody needs to know that. And then, uh, well, the choices you do with this, okay, that might be very, very context-specific. So, we do the map, we play the uh, high value, high complexity skills and the sophisticated architecture only where it matters. The thing with domain-driven design is giving you the tool for diagnosis where applying the full stack of uh, 
capabilities also in the architectural and, uh, and implementation space make sense. You don't have to make everything perfect. You have to make really, really good things where quality pays off. You spoke a lot about DDD and in general, this kind of recognition that we have to first build or at least identify a shared context, then identify the language inside this shared context, and then develop software, which is, you know, makes a lot of sense, especially inside an organization. But on the other hand, a boundless, for example, we have been interested lately in understanding uh, how organizations can bring, uh, for example, a new standard in, in the market, or at least position, for example, some of their products as enabling platforms, right? And position a product uh, into the market as an enabling platform, of course, uh, goes with uh, uh, kind of projecting on your ecosystem your choices in terms of ontologies and models, right? Of course, there is a degree of uh, extendability that uh, you can inject into a platform strategy through what we call, for example, extension platforms. Uh, so typically, we see operators uh, coming into the market with um, the possibility to develop plugins and extensions or templates. Uh, so that, you know, the, the third parties in the ecosystem can, to some extent, integrate and extend your ontology, can make it possible for, for the customers to find out uh, very niche use cases, right? But to some extent, when an organization brings something into the market, there is always this, um, you know, legitimacy that the organization needs to build for third parties to use a piece of software, or especially a platform, right? Because the platform is enabling uh, higher value uh, exchanges on top. Lately, we have seen um, the emergence of this conversation around Web3 as uh, somehow an alternative and an evolution of the platform model. And most of these Web3 uh, players have said, you know, we're going to build... Uh, protocols, protocols are not going to be by a central party, I would say, and so you more free, more sovereign. But I've seen rarely a conversation around understanding, for example, why some of these protocols are not used, or for example, why uh, there is this tendency to always reinvent the wheel uh, in this Web3 space. I feel like when companies or DAOs, actually, uh, distributed organizations, want to bring a standard, an enabling platform, a protocol into the market, very rarely they understand that uh, uh, there may be some work needed before creating the technology and bringing it into the market. Uh, there may be some work needed in first building the shared context and building the shared uh, language. At the same time, uh, I think in a, in a preparatory conversation we had, you also spoke about the case of AWS, pointing out how Amazon has been able to bring this standard to the market through a very aggressive provisioning and cheap provisioning, um, I would say, pattern. So maybe we can use a few minutes uh, in this conversation to nudge you into a reflection around driving standards into markets, into ecosystems, uh, what could be the role of DDD and, in general, how to ponder beyond technology and business model and provisioning as potential strategies to bring something into the market? The questions around 
building these shared languages and, and shared context uh, so that uh, the parties involved in the ecosystem can more uh, happily and more easily uh, you know, embrace a shared model. What do you think? I like when you use the word uh, legitimacy for a model. I'm not uh, really, really familiar with, uh, with the Web3 space, uh, but my assumption is uh, most of the models that we're talking about are building blocks. So the modeling space, it is layered and uh, they are expecting companies, organizations, or individuals to build a higher level services based on top of components, which are, let's say, at lower level of abstraction, composition in, in, this, uh, in, in, in this way. But uh, the more you approach a, a larger arena, the harder it is to do something which is uh, standard for everybody going beyond very basic stuff. I'm thinking about uh, uh, what happened with, uh, with the old uh, Java class for the calendar. The, it was, uh, people have been working in the Java space. It has been one of the most complex, uh, uh, basic uh, uh, problems in, uh, in Java because you needed to be aware of uh, uh, different time zones just to have a calendar. And then, uh, Something like 15 years later, uh, under the pressure of the community, can you, can you just make it simpler? Because we don't need all of this complexity. In the basic case, uh, a few simpler abstractions were brought to the market. They were not as general purpose of the uh, Java Util Calendar, but they were faster to use and, uh, and easier, and they were solving most of the basic stuff. Well, the thing is, if you want to be generic in a wide arena, you need to study and prepare a little more. And maybe the cost for it is not really uh, worthwhile. At the same time, when you said like uh, some people are just reinventing the wheel, the cost of doing and uh, the pleasure of doing could be more interesting than the cost of knowing there's already a solution plus the cost of learning how this solution, which has been developed with a mental model, which is different from mine, why learning this could, could be not so rewarding. And then I'm locked into a solution that is uh, not exactly what I need. Or even more, there are so many available solutions for basic stuff, and then you don't know which one is reliable, which one is supported by uh, a teenage developer, which one is supported by a larger company, which maybe is dysfunctional, so they just hire a teenage developer because the, that's the only person that would maintain this piece of software. Uh, whenever you're using software components all around, you're thinking about what is the background, how, how might be the long-term stuff. So sometimes reinventing it is just a way to keep it under your control without distributing vulnerabilities uh, all, uh, all around. It's, a, it's actually fairly complex ecosystem in this, uh, in, in this sense. Like uh, I'm thinking about the metaphor of uh, software components as Lego bricks, which is one of the most flawed metaphors in software development. Just like uh, every single time you spend so much time searching for the piece you, uh, you're looking for and then evaluating, is it really right for me? What might be the consequences? Uh, what is the license and all of this, uh, this stuff? This takes an awful amount of time and it's also not quality time. Sometimes it's, uh, it's just more rewarding to just, well, I'm going to develop mine. I'm going to put it on GitHub, make it available uh, to other people and making the problem of selecting the perfect solution harder for the next one to come. So it's a messy ecosystem if you 
add in humans and their habits for learning and for getting a little bit of um, personal uh, reward and recognition, I think it's going to stay messy. There is no way to, well, let's uh, take all the useless stuff away. That's an interesting point. I, th- I think the, the, uh, adding the, the detail that comes um, you know, with Web3 and platforms in general is this question of network effects, which depend on sharing, a, somehow depend on sharing a context, right? I totally understand your points, the points that you say that you're bringing up in, you know, that are somehow conducive to acknowledging that uh, there will always be a tendency to reinvent the wheel, but on the other side, that we have this pressure to instead sharing a space, sharing a context, because in this way we can achieve network effects. But So these are open questions, I think, that we have to... Uh, to research uh, more. There's one thing that I, that I, that I forgot, like uh, the, the thing about establishing standards, so it, it really changes a lot. Uh, we, we mentioned Amazon, and it's a way to get in a, an empty area first, blue ocean first, uh, getting there with a very good quality level, then you might be a de facto standard. In general, when you, when you mention uh, legitimacy, it's... Uh, the quality of your component is so good uh, compared to the alternatives that this becomes an obvious choice. And this is a good way to create standard in in a place. It's actually very hard if you have already competing uh, approaches to the same problem and uh, forcing a standard above the the existing uh, uh, technologies. That's where uh, we discuss the the wall plug problems. It's just like uh, it's it's the same thing, the same problem in every country. But Italian wall plugs are different from British, which are different from Germany, uh, and which are different from uh, other nation. And uh, and there is a interesting market for wall plug adapters in airports just because of this, because we couldn't reach an agreement on a standard on something which is actually trivial, like three holes in the wall. We are talking a lot about, on the one hand, developing software quite on the technical level. And you also mentioned that, you know, your technique is not only for developing software, but it's it's actually a technique for evolving organizations, making like complex environments and disagreements visible and so on. So I wanted to just quickly come back to that element of maybe more looking at your company and and your and the hub uh, that you are creating. Uh, what different profiles are useful for you in that? Because I can imagine you work a lot with developers, obviously, organizational designers. I don't know other profiles that you find are helpful to evolve your practice and your your framework and and what you're looking into also maybe like forward looking one of the things that happens especially in in uh, in process uh, uh, process modeling is uh, we see every business process as a sequence or a combination of uh, uh, tough decision. I mean, there are also easy decisions, but uh, uh, the process never stops on the, on the easy decision. And, uh, and this gave us a little bit of a, of a framework for uh, trying to improve, to streamline any process, looking at, okay, why are you designing this? What is information you're looking at? How hard it is to achieve this information or to reach this information in your organization? So uh, this, this uh, synergy of... Uh, 
software architectural people making this information available, UX and UI designer making this information uh, rich, easy, understandable, uh, easy to access, uh, but also in, it, it's a way of uh, uh, finding uh, new ways to to do leadership inside the organization. The moment uh, you make the decision-making pattern streamlined and easy, maybe you don't need uh, a top uh, layer position to make a critical decision because the process becomes a little bit uh, more obvious and could be distributed. That's more or less the key uh, issues that, that we're facing. I guess the hardest part now for organizations which are mostly being or going or going remote is uh, finding a way to make a distributed decision, especially on critical areas, still possible. And uh, currently is a space where visual designers really can, can help a lot. Like uh, our purpose at this moment is uh, understand which decisions are really, really critical. Is there any way to make them easy? Can we design a decision-making space for remote contributors, which makes their decision easy up to the point of being obvious. It's not always guaranteed, but designing those decision-making space is actually our current challenge. I would like to ask you uh, to share your breadcrumbs with our listeners. So anything that you want to uh, direct our listeners to. Uh, well, if you're curious about domain-driven design, there's a few books you might want to uh, to get into. Maybe the smaller one is uh, Von Vernon, Domain-Driven Design Distilled, uh, before getting to the bigger red book, which is more for uh, technical people. Of course, there's uh, uh, my book on, uh, on even storming, uh, if you're curious about it. I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff coming from uh, uh, David Sibet in terms of visualization. Uh, visual meetings was uh, uh, my entry point. And, uh, and also, I would say Dave Gray, he gave me a lot of insights about uh, how to think different type of organization and how to create a space uh, so that... Uh, different type of organization with uh, lesser involvement from the top management could uh, could survive. And the final thing, the uh, DDDQ project on GitHub, where they share a lot of resources, uh, modern stuff about uh, domain-driven design. I forgot the Avanced Coperta blog, where I put a few of these things, and uh, it was kind of uh, obvious for me, so well. Also, this one. Definitely, we will put every every link into the notes, and I really encourage uh, you, you guys, to, the listeners, to check out uh, the Amascoperta website and see if you can jump on some of the trainings that Alberto and his crew are are delivering. So yeah, well, I can also thank you so much uh, from my side, uh, Alberto. I almost feel like we would need a part two of this conversation because the, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, things that we could have explored um, even more. So really good, useful resources. Hope you also enjoyed the time with us, Alberto. Absolutely. Yes, it was a pleasure. Great. So for everything that we have been mentioning, you can, as always, find all the notes on our website, boundarless.io slash resources slash podcast. And uh, we catch up soon. And remember to think boundaryless. so many great episodes this year but um, this one was crazy 
Yeah, definitely super fascinating episode. And um, so one thing that I really uh, thought was interesting about this uh, um, event storming workshop, which, by the way, I would really like to to try once, uh, was this idea of visualizing um, disagreement and the fact that uh, uh, reaching an agreement can be one of the most costly uh, aspects um, of an organization and how this technique is uh, not helping to reach agreements, but actually helping people to at least uh, agree on, on what they see.